Hello, and welcome to another edition of ABI Podcast. I'm Professor Drew Dawson of the University of Miami School of Law and the ABI Robert M. Zenman Resident Scholar for the spring of 2017. Today, I will be talking with Neil Steinkamp, author of Understanding Ordinary, a primer on financial and economic considerations for the ordinary course defenses to bankruptcy preference actions. Neil is at the global financial advisory services firm Stout Richards Ross, where he is a managing director in the Dispute Advisory and Forensic Services Group and head of the firm's commercial litigation and forensic services practice. He has extensive experience providing a broad range of business and financial advice to trial lawyers and in-house counsel. Thank you for joining me today, Neil. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast. So you've recently published the second edition of your book, Understanding Ordinary, and we will talk about what's new in this edition. But first, can you start by telling us a little about your professional experiences that led you to write this book to begin with? Certainly. So over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to work in a variety of bankruptcy-related contexts, uh, but many of them were involving preference cases, both for debtors and creditors. And over those years, I had the opportunity to to certainly develop uh, uh, thinking on the variety of ways in which one can understand ordinary and demonstrate ordinary in the context of a preference case. And it occurred to me that it would be beneficial to many of the bankruptcy communities that have a guidebook uh, to at least get started on thinking about the variety of documents and information that can be used to help understand what is oftentimes a very vague concept, uh, that being what is ordinary. Yeah, and so when you're talking about writing this for the for the bankruptcy community, what's really the intended audience here? Are you thinking of bankruptcy lawyers, uh, accountants? I think the intention for the book was really that it would it would be a useful resource for a lot of people in the bankruptcy community. So while certainly bankruptcy lawyers um, are a primary audience, um, people who are working in preference cases either regularly or infrequently um, certainly can benefit from some of the the information in the book. But it was also intended to help uh, advisors to. Uh, bankruptcy lawyers, trustees, mm-hmm. um, and even in-house credit departments who often have to think about what the uh, circumstances are going to be um, as they are working with a distressed company. What do they need to be thinking about both in advance uh, of a bankruptcy mm-hmm. filing and after bankruptcy filing? Well, that's really interesting. And I want to get to that part about you know thinking in advance because I think that's a really interesting section of your book. So if we dive into like sort of the way the book is structured, you know, chapters one and two give a really concise and neat overview of bank of bankruptcy preference law and the two main exceptions you focus on: the ordinary course and the new value. Um, preference law really, of course, is you know bedrock bankruptcy rule, consistent with the principle that equity is equality. Debtors shouldn't be able to favor some creditors at the expense of others by making pre-bankruptcy transfers. But of course, in U.S. bankruptcy law, somewhat oddly, we don't really have an element of intent. You don't have to show the the debtor intended to benefit those recipients. Intent only comes in, if at all, only indirectly through the defenses, particularly the ordinary course defense, which is the main subject of your book. So, Neil, what's the basic premise behind shielding pre-bankruptcy transfers that were made in the ordinary course of business? Yeah, I think the the thinking uh, behind the bankruptcy code, um, and really, un- I, I think it is important for for parties to 
to think through what the code is trying to achieve. And, and there are certainly uh, a variety of um, views on what the bankruptcy code was trying to achieve, but one view uh, is certainly that as a distressed company is trending towards a bankruptcy, there are a number of parties who are going to be looking to get paid um, in advance of the bankruptcy. Uh, any of its creditors would certainly uh, be interested in having their invoices paid. Uh, and so, uh, however, obviously as you're trending towards bankruptcy, it's going to have uh, a limited availability of cash to pay all of the creditors. So the bankruptcy code, I think, is trying to ensure that people are treated fairly and ordinarily as the company is moving towards bankruptcy. So in circumstances where one creditor is receiving funds um, that, that one can look back on and say, well, you received a preferential treatment of some sort and that that money should have gone to other creditors um, at the time, I think that's what the code is trying to, to do is to say, were the payments that you received, were those being made in a fashion that was ordinary, either because of the relationship you have with that party or because in the industry this is normal and ordinary, such that you didn't receive funds that should have gone to other creditors. There's an equal playing field as the debtor moves towards bankruptcy. Which makes a lot of sense. I mean, a payment made in the ordinary course would presumably not have been intended to be Prefer to preference to advantage the recipient of the transfer. But of course, the difficulty is identifying which transfers should qualify for that ordinary course status. And you you talk about the two main tests for doing this, right? The objective test and the subjective test. Maybe we could talk about each of those in ordinary. What is what is meant by this objective test of ordinary course? Yeah, the objective test is often also referred to as ordinary in the industry. And what, as a result of BAPSIPA, uh, you know, these tests, either of them can be demonstrated uh, in order for a payment to be considered ordinary. Uh, ordinary in the industry, uh, or the, the objective test, is saying in your industry, typically the industry of the creditor, although courts have, have sometimes taken different views. Most often it's the industry of the creditor. Uh, in your industry, were you paid uh, from the debtor in a fashion that would be considered ordinary? It's an interesting test in that it, it, it does not look necessarily to the course of conduct between the parties. As we'll talk about here shortly, there's a different test for the, that. So you can step out of the shoes of your relationship with a debtor and say, yeah, as we look across my industry, my being the creditor, this is how people are paid. I work with companies like this. They have these sort of economic pressures. And as a result, payment terms are usually of this type, and I usually get paid in this kind of a, a range. Um, you can look towards industry information. You can look towards information um, from other customers of the creditor or debtor. Um, but you're trying to assess what is ordinary in the industry m more broadly. Okay, so that's the industry standard of the objective test. And what's the other, the subjective test? The subjective test is often called ordinary between the parties. And that test is uh, intended to look at the relationship between the debtor and the creditor over time. 
usually, or I don't know if I would say usually, frequently, the courts um, look to a period of some time prior to um, the preference period, uh, which is often 90 days preceding the bankruptcy. That period that you look to to establish a, a normal course of conduct between the parties can vary. Sometimes it's limited by the very length of the relationship uh, between the parties. In some cases, there's only a few invoices that are paid, and then you have the preference period. In other instances, you have years of history between these parties. And so the ability to show some ordinary trend, range, or course of conduct between the parties is going to depend on the length of time the parties have had a relationship. But there are all sorts of things that are going to come into um, context as well. There can be changes in terms. There can be changes in product. There can be seasonality. There can be changes in credit management and credit department staff and turnover. And so there are a lot of things that need to be understood just beyond the number of days between an invoice and a payment. But overall, the goal of the test is to try to assess how the parties invoiced and were paid on those invoices in a period prior to the preference period. That makes a lot of sense, what you're saying. But of course, you know, establishing what's ordinary in the industry or what was ordinary between the parties is really complicated. And I think that's where you know, chapters three and four of your book that's where your experience, your expertise in this field really shines through. Uh, in chapter three, right, we're discusses the role of accounting systems in establishing ordinary course, something that perhaps many bankruptcy lawyers haven't necessarily thought about ahead of time. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this, the role of accounting systems in establishing ordinary course defense? Yeah, as I drafted the book and considered the context for it, I did want to make sure that it wasn't strictly case law. Um, and a reader of the book will see that it's it's really not. There's certainly reference to a lot of the cases, and in this latest edition, many of the more recent decisions that have come out. But I wanted to make sure that those that were reading it and trying to understand not only what ordinary was, uh, or at least what the courts have said it is, uh, but also, what is the kind of information you need to be gathering in order to make those sort of assessments? And very frequently, where that starts is in the accounting information. You're looking for invoice documents. You're looking for payment information. Um, but you're also looking for a lot of other information because, as I was saying a moment ago, in that test between the parties, and this is also often relevant in the industry, you're trying to understand the context of what's going on. So it's not just a statistical analysis of the number of days between an invoice and a payment. It's often very important to understand the relationship that is behind those invoices and payments. And that means understanding the credit department of the creditor. How did they react in situations like this? When a, when a company fell behind on its payments, what was their normal course of conduct? How did they react to that? What kind of um, effort was made to gather um, additional information or to collect? What about instances in which there were product returns or discrepancies that were identified in the invoicing process? How were those handled and how does that reflect itself in some of the information that you're looking at with respect to the payments? Were there credit manuals uh, for both the debtor and the creditor? And how do all of those things tell you why what you're seeing in the data is what it is? And how does that inform your thinking about what was ordinary between the parties and what is ordinary in the industry of the creditor? 
It seems enormously useful, not only in bankruptcy litigation, but also in for in-house credit departments and thinking about how they manage records in the event that they end up being defendants in a preference action. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, there's there's a fair amount of activity that can can really help um, a credit department as they are working with distressed companies to be documenting that what they are doing during the distressed period is still ordinary so that they mitigate their risks associated with a potential future preference case. And there's there are things that you can do. One is to have the systems in place, be gathering some of this information and have records of these sorts of things, have manuals, have processes, have procedures, and then follow them. Because the more you're following something, the more it will seem ordinary. Of course, there are always times when something different happens. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it extraordinary, but how you react to that may make it extraordinary. And so having some of these processes, systems, and document collection can be helpful for a credit department just as a, a routine procedure to make sure that you're mitigating risk. The related issue that you go through in Chapter 4 is deals with, discusses the importance of harnessing data to support an ordinary course defense. Can you talk a little bit about that process? What sort of information and is would be necessary for supporting an ordinary course defense? So with, with some of the context that you gather through what we discussed in Chapter 3 uh, from a moment ago, Chapter 4 is trying to provide the reader with an understanding of the additional data that you can gather, um, but also how you analyze it and how you get comfortable in drawing a conclusion related to what may be ordinary. So in Chapter 4, I do talk about, for example, the time period of the analysis. How far back should you go, can you go, um, to establish ordinary? Is it enough to look at a six-month trend? Do you need to go back two years or three years or five years? And the answers to that will vary, in part by the context that you get in, in Chapter 3, but Certainly, the, the first couple of years prior to the preference period can be really valuable, but it also depends on the creditor. You need to understand where there's seasonality patterns. Was there an industry recession that influenced payment terms? Um, that kind of information is going to be very helpful. But you also have to, to ask a lot of questions about the information that is received. You may see um, abnormalities or aberrations in the data um, that just require follow-up. So again, it's not not typically enough to just say, well, this is one standard deviation of the payments, and I, I don't know why the payments outside that were made the way they were. Oftentimes, when you look at some of the payments that have more extended um, payment times, you realize that that's because there was a, a discrepancy on the invoice, and the parties talked about it, and they weren't sure why, and people were looking into it, and it just delays payment. And that can mm -hmm. be normal for that to happen. And so that should also be considered ordinary in many contexts. So analyzing the data um, is valuable, but you have to understand what the data is saying as well. Um, and that's one of the themes that I try to develop in both chapters three and four. Now in chapters five and six, you go through the, uh, the objective and the subjective test that we've already talked about. Then in chapter seven, I think this is new material on the new value defense. Yeah, Chapter 7 is new um, for this uh, second edition of the book, um, where uh, in so many of the cases um, that are obviously in the, in the preference space, new value is a very important consideration. And so um, 
some of the feedback that I had received from the first edition was that the, the chapters on the ordinary course defense were great, but what about new value? Um, it sort of left people wanting a little bit more information about how to complete many of the analyses that you need to do um, for a preference case to really look at the net exposure for a client um, or for a company. And so we wanted to provide some additional guidance, and that's where um, Chapter 7 came into play. Because the new value defense, kind of like ordinary course, it makes it has a logic to it as to why we would exempt these transfers from these pre-bankruptcy transfers from preference litigation. But could you walk us through that? What is exactly the new value defense? What's the idea behind it? So the new value defense is, um, the, I think the idea is that if you continue to provide product um, to a debtor, that you should get credit for that um, and that it should reduce your preference exposure. So the bankruptcy code wants you to to have an incentive, a reason to continue to supply product um, to, again, make that, that bankruptcy process a little bit more smooth for the debtor. And so you do get credit for subsequent new value that you provide, that being in the form of product or services that you continue to provide to the debtor. What's the wrinkle with, uh, when applying the new value defense? What makes this such a complicated area? Well, I think I think part of it is the the um, there's still a bit of a, a a split of interpretation on whether the credit that you get um, is both paid um, and unpaid subsequent new value. And what I mean by that is there are times when you are providing additional product to the debtor bankruptcy happens and you're you're subsequently paid for those invoices. Um, some courts have said that even if you do get paid um, uh, later, that you can still use that as credit towards your preference um, exposure. Others have said, no, it must remain unpaid in order to get credit for it. So there is... Um, there are still sort of differing views out there on um, when and how and to what extent you get credit on these subsequent um, new value transactions that are occurring. And it can cause uh, some discrepancy between the viewpoints of the trustees and, and debtors as well as the creditors. Well, it's a very nice addition to the book, uh, a, a strong book, which really gives a good overview of many of these complicated issues. And um, I want to thank you, Neil, for joining us today to talk about that book. Yes, thank you. It's it's uh, great to share a little bit about it. Um, and it, the only other thing I would add is that in addition to the content, we do try to provide some uh, industry resources and common metrics that can be valuable in the appendices of the book. So uh, readers uh, should definitely refer to those as they engage with trying to understand ordinary. There are good sources of information that they can use to help build some of these arguments. Neil's book, Understanding Ordinary, is available for purchase at the ABI Bookstore. In addition, this program and nearly 200 other podcasts are available in the ABI online newsroom. Until next time, this is Drew Dawson, and thank you for listening to this edition of ABI Podcast. 